Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our regular conversation about disruptive innovation in Canada and around the world. I'm John Stackhouse. Last week, I traveled to Davos with RBC CEO Dave Mackay for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. This year's forum was dominated by the global economy, Europe, China, and of course, Donald Trump. Here's some of what we heard. Dave, thanks for joining us. Hi, John. It's great to be back in Canada. Well, this was your third, uh, your third Davos. What was, uh, what was different? Well, from the day we got there, the six feet of snow, I think, <laughs> on the roofs and the, on the sidewalks, it was, it was tough getting around. But uh, I think on the first morning, the sun came out and everything started melting. And I think that was certainly the theme throughout is that the sun is out and everything's shining and people were feeling pretty good about things. It even created a Davos traffic jam. I think there's like two roads in the town. <laughs> I don't know if that was because the president was trying to move about okay. the town. They closed the roads. There were, there were some the VIPs snow, there as well. <laughs> there are quite a few VIPs there from every major G7 country. A lot of people, when they hear Davos, they think of this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the retreat for the elite. It's where they go to, uh, what's the great line? It's where billionaires tell millionaires what the middle class is uh, thinking. Is that a fair perception of the place? I know that is the perception because of the types of individuals that go. But when you bring levels of government together from prime ministers and presidents through their administration, through policymakers, with NGOs, with academic institutions and professors, with CEOs, when you come together as a global population to talk about the biggest issues facing our societies and what the solutions are, I think that's incredible. And there's nowhere else on our planet that we do this. It also has an amazing ability to bring together world leaders. You know, Trudeau and Macron, May, uh, Merkel were there. Uh, the Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi was, uh, was there. And of course, the dominant figure of the week was, uh, was Donald Trump. You got to spend a bit of time with, uh, with Trump himself uh, at a reception and uh, certainly with members of the, the administration. What were your impressions of the man? There was such a positive uh, sentiment among largely U.S. Uh, large corporate CEOs and the reception I was at on, on Thursday night. The president delivered a message of growth, of prosperity, uh, a message of uh, America first, but not America alone, which you heard very much the following day in his speech. Uh, I think you heard a message of expectations that should be greater than they are today. And I think he's trying to lead through setting higher expectations for growth in the U.S. economy and making the policy changes that drive that. So overall, I think the message was very well received by the audience, which happened to be large company CEOs around investing the benefits of tax cuts uh, into the U.S. economy, into growth in jobs and, and, and growth in competitiveness. I think I was at uh, one session with his energy secretary, Rick Perry, who tried to describe uh, America first and what the thinking was uh, behind that. And he said, think of it as competitiveness. This is about America being competitive. It's probably the most competitive uh, economy in, in, in the world, but trying to be even more competitive. Uh, are they just glossing over a more uh, nationalist view of America first? Or do you think they're trying to kind of integrate now or reintegrate with the global economy uh, on a more competitive term? I think they recognize that 
the global economy has become so integrated. Manufacturing chains are integrated across markets. Retail chains are, are, are growing. And access to that global population, that global prosperity growth is really important to the interests of, of American businesses. So I think America First was really designed around there are certain components of the trade relationship America has with certain countries where there's significant imbalances. And the, to question those imbalances, I think every leader would do. But I think the recognition that there are so many other trading relationships, including that with Canada, that are important to the long-term success and security of the United States that have to be protected. Therefore, I think there's, there's, there's a number of issues at play. And therefore, the recognition of a more balanced message between those countries we have an issue with and those countries we want to grow with and seem to have a balanced relationship with, I think, was part of the warming of messaging that we saw in Davos. So clearly, they've got uh, a few bones to pick with China, maybe with Mexico, but we've seen them take uh, a pr- <laughs> they, they've taken a kind of elbows up approach as well to Canada on cases like uh, Bombardier. Did you get a sense of a softening of that tone while you were there? Certainly, uh, with respect to the NAFTA negotiations, that's live, that's evolving by by the day. But did you get a different feeling from people in the administration or U.S. business leaders who are uh, involved in these trade conversations? I would say I did, but I'm very cautious and skeptical. I think we're in the middle of very difficult Negotiations. Every country wants to come out with a little bit better for their own population, including obviously America. I think we clearly recognize that this is a 25-year-old agreement that requires modernization. Modernization in how we define trade, modernization in the terms of trades. Therefore, there is room to make change. I think every nation, trilateral, uh, in the case of NAFTA, is trying to get the best deal. So when you're in the middle of negotiations and you hear a softening of positions, I don't take them that seriously. I think at the end of the day, we still are in a tough negotiation. We'll see that this week, obviously, with the Montreal round and what comes out of that and how the United States chooses its path forward. So yes, I did hear it, but I'm a little skeptical as to the authenticity of they're still negotiating pretty hard. Maybe we can turn to uh, the global economy. I can't remember the mood at Davos being so bullish. I mean, it was almost unanimous that uh, these are maybe the best of times. And one has to remind oneself that Davos is often wrong. I think back to two years ago in 2016, when China was sliding, oil was way down, people were talking like it was the end of the world or the bear market had begun. And then, of course, (laughs) a great surge in markets followed that. A year ago, after the election of Trump and the Brexit vote, people again thought the world was coming to an end. Finally, we have this really bullish mood at Davos, and I know some Skeptics or even cynics are saying this is a signal that uh, maybe we're not seeing the risks that are uh, perhaps out there. What did you bring home in terms of your perspective on the state of the world economy? Is it time to be still still bullish or should we have uh, a bit more concern? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a, a couple of you know topics that we spent a lot of time as CEOs, not only the financial services CEOs spent time in it, but also you know, the consumer goods, packaged goods CEOs who I spoke to are spending time on it. You know, the first one is, particularly on the financial side, you know, what's the signal we should be looking for or what you know, systemic risks are out there that would signal a turn in economic prospects and a downturn? There's many risks out there from climate risk to liquidity risk. We don't see leverage risk in the system, you know, given all the changes and the amount of leverage reduction you've seen 
over the past decade, uh, we see technology disruption risks. But as you try to debate them and look for what the imminent signs would be, it's very hard to see over the next four, five, six quarters any really strong signals that you might have a risk that will manifest itself in a, in a sharp turn downwards. And the big one, the second one, is how technology disruption <clears throat> platforms are going to change in jobs. AI has been quoted as you know the big job killer and job changer. It's hard to play these out into the future because there's so many unknowns. One of the questions I imagine is around political risk, and there's certainly no shortage of political risks in the world. You look at Korea, uh, there's a significant chance of uh, military conflict there, very serious tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, go, go on and on. But the point being that our markets are not pricing those adequately. Is that, a, is that an overblown concern or do you worry much about that? I think everybody talks about the geopolitical risks, whether it's the Middle East, with Iran, certainly with North Korea, has consumed our attention for the past year. Uh, it's very difficult for the business community and the academic community to to really have any input or control because so many variables outside your purview. It's really left in the hands of of a few senior leaders in our in our world, uh, political leaders, to to manage the situation. And we have to have confidence in their ability to come to the right solutions because we have very little control or input. So, you know, for a CEO who likes to control, which is most CEOs in the world, it's you're you're on the sidelines hoping that they can resolve this. And the markets have looked through that risk, somewhat surprisingly, because it's very difficult to predict such a negative outcome that's so damaging to all sides. You know, thinking is we should be able to come to a rational agreement that protects the life and on on South Korea, North Korea, America, wherever it happens to be, coming to an irrational outcome just seems to be such a, a low probability, wide tail event that we look through it. Right. Uh, I think from that perspective. What did you sort of come home thinking about uh, on this big question of the roboticization of the economy, about what AI and other technologies are doing or may do to the workforce and what employers, big or small, public or private, should be thinking about and possibly doing? I, I left with a certain perspective and I, I reinforced that and I came back with a number of, of clearer ideas on, on cadence of change and velocity. The first thing I would say is we're in, right now we're in a period of transition where we're not removing traditional jobs as fast as maybe we've talked about as a, as in the press and we're creating a lot of jobs that are helping manage the transition. So I think these are good times when there's enormous job creation without destruction, and that could manifest itself for the better part of five years to a decade. There will come a point where, as we've made these transitions in transportation and education and health, that we will start to remove some of the older traditional jobs as machines and bots take them over. So the, the velocity and timing of this, I think, is more delayed than what we thought, and we're creating an enormous amount of jobs in data analysis and robotic design uh, in so many areas that are trying to solve these problems. And until we solve them and we trust the machines, we're not going to destroy the world we live in today. So I think we're living in this era of prosperity, of doing both. That could persist for quite some time. There will come a time where we, we have to prepare ourselves to eliminate those old jobs because we do trust the machines in healthcare, in transportation, in education. And therefore, 
we have to use this time that we're, we're given for the transition really well, which is why we talk about retraining and radical retraining and investing the time and money now to help position these skills for the future, to build the transitions, but to make sure we don't leave anybody behind. Our program is called RBC Disruptors. Maybe we can talk a bit about uh, disruption and uh, what you learned f- about disruption at Davos. What uh, what ideas did you pick up? What signals did you uh, sense about disruptions to uh, to come? Um, maybe share a bit about the conversations you had with different industries about how they're thinking through uh, some of these these great challenges of disruption. One of the changes, as you asked me right off the top, that I noticed this year, in addition to the six feet of snow, was how many small startup companies were invited to participate and how well they integrated with large corporates, whether it was a consumer packaged good industry that got together or the financial services sector that got together or the international business community of CEOs, which I'm part of, got together. Every group focused on technology and smaller companies with innovative ideas that shouldn't be integrated into their value chain, into their customer solutions and services. For me, I was standing waiting between meetings of of one CEO to the next and a small entrepreneur from Italy came up to me uh, from Milan and he introduced himself and he saw my name tag. We all wear name tags. And he said, I was hoping to bump into you and I can't believe I bumped into you with a thousand people around here, but I did. So can I take 15 minutes and tell you about my company and why RBC should really be looking at my services? And he gave me a five-minute prepared pitch that I thought was fantastic. I said, we should be talking. And here's my card. And I promise to circle back and get you connected to the right people in Canada. That happened a couple of times. I had some formal meetings with small uh, entrepreneurial fintech companies that we'd set up beforehand who reached out. So that's the beauty of Davos. When you bring this community together and you have these random interactions and planned interactions, you really are connecting so many neurons and connecting the world. And and it's those types of events that can lead to exciting things. And uh, and I think that's uh, that's really why this is such a special event. It's a great message to entrepreneurs. Always have your five minute uh, pitch ready to go. You never, you never know. know where it can lead. <laughs> exactly. Right? You never you never yeah. know. Um, which sectors do you find most interesting from your conversations at Davos about uh, when it comes to disruption? As I mentioned, I had a chance to sit on a panel in front of the, the CEOs in the packaged good industry and and talk to the story and the journey of RBC as we deal with disruption in our business model and you know, building a platform ecosystem and competing with the fangs. And they're facing very similar issues in, in their own industry and sharing stories and getting into small breakout groups with these CEOs and talking through kind of solutions and opportunities that, as they look to build out different customer value propositions and a, and a different operating model. And you know, when you get to put yourself in someone else's shoes and think about their industry, it really helps when you come back to your own industry to think about, am I looking at the world correctly? Am I assumptions and hypothesis right? And I thought that was a you know, great opportunity for me to just to, to test ideas among some, you know, some great leaders and, and to, to get out of our industry into another one who's dealing with the consumer as, we are, as we're dealing with and to, to make sure that we're looking at the world correctly and you know, you know, hopefully... They did take away some ideas from other companies, retail companies, on how they're building out 
uh, you know, data-driven organizations and AI-driven organizations. So this, this idea of ecosystems is getting uh, kind, of, kind of more more and more attention. It was certainly uh, talked about a fair bit at uh, Davos. Maybe you can explain a bit about what it means. What is an ecosystem from a business point of view, and how should uh, businesses, investors, or is people who are interested in the economy uh, better understand ecosystems? Yeah, in fact, the dialogue has evolved to the point where we have different definitions for platform and ecosystems now. Used to lump, two years ago, you lumped them all together into one definition. It really talks about the breaking down of barriers between traditional industries and services and value propositions to consumers or businesses, if you're a B2C or B2B company, expanding horizontally or vertically to meet many more needs and, and pain points uh, of your customer. And therefore, that platform is enabled by a deep digital information data understanding of that customer and a whole new series of channels and outlets to serve those needs and to, to offer services to those customers. So that, that's a platform of customers with a broad set of needs where you bundle needs supported by a, a deep understanding of those needs with data uh, and an interaction profile that's quite frequent. So you know, we call those platforms in that you can build services off those platforms with that data, you can expand. And you know, Amazon's a great, you know, great example of a platform. You start you know, offering books and then you grow your categories based on a deep understanding of the customer. And now you go from one product category to 150 product categories and everybody's thinking along a similar lines. How do I take a core offering to a customer, get a deep understanding and build out relevant services, whether that's traditionally within what I've done before quite different than what I've done before with a customer. We call that you know, data platforms and customer platforms that uh, bring in partners to help meet needs. I was struck by the number of companies, and frankly, governments as well, who are struggling with their relationship with customers or for governments with citizens because of the digital age. They no longer have physical contact. They don't see their, their customers or their voters face-to-face. They only see data, and that's a big mind shift for, for a lot of business people. Do you feel that businesses generally have better relationships with their customers today, or is it worse because they don't have that that face-to-face contact? I would say there's two dimensions to that question. One, I think businesses are working really hard to build a better understanding of customers and to build that understanding through new channels because in many cases, particularly for banks, customers are not frequenting your traditional channels like branches and telephone banking the way they did in the past and therefore you must build a new insight with partners and with, with different data sources. So I think everyone's working hard, and I think our understanding and relevance to customers is improving significantly in this new era of understanding. From a perspective of how does a customer feel about that, uh, it, it, it varies, and we measure that through trust. You know, how does a customer trust an organization? When you look at trust in governments, uh, it's gone down quite significantly as in large institutions, particularly in the United States, as we've seen. Uh, we look in trust in corporations. It's it's mixed across the country. It's very strong in Canada. It's gone up, and it's, I think, the best in the world. The most trusted companies in the world are Canadian-based companies. What did you learn from others in terms of what they're doing to, uh, to earn and develop trust with their employees, with their communities, with society at large? Now, it was really interesting to watch the tech companies discuss the concept of trust. And I think Mark Benioff challenged 
uh, his peers to say, if trust is not your number one corporate objective, then you've got a real problem. You know, we live in an era of mixed trust, you know, some declining, some falling, particularly for those companies that have, have misused information, have breached trust and have not taken responsibility for, you know, their business models and, and for, you know, for the financial services industry, as an example, we move money and we're held accountable for moving other people's money, knowing where it comes from and knowing where it's going. And we work very closely with governments to, to document that, and that's a big part of the response that we take. And I think too often the technology companies have said, you know, we move information, but we take no responsibility for the quality and accuracy of that information. Well, it's like us saying we move money and we just take no responsibility for it. Well, absolutely we do. I think the world, from governments through to society, is, is calling them on that to say, no, you are moving information and, and the accuracy of that information and the source of that information you have to take responsibility for. And I think that's a big change in dialogue. That comes down to trust. And I think you're seeing a lot of dialogue. Even Davos was a great example between all sectors around you know, trust in information, trust in representation of fact. Uh, is, is mission critical to democracy and st- stable democracy and therefore is important to our society. If, you, uh, if you're back in Davos next year, what's the one thing you hope will be different about the world? I would certainly say I, I hope that we have no discussion about uh, North Korean risk next year. Um, I hope we've resolved the major trade disputes and that we're back onto a, a an era of positive globalization and trade, and we resolve some of these frictions so we can build. I hope we're still in a world of synchronized growth. I think the statistic I saw, the 190 plus countries in the world, only five have declining GDP growth. If you could name a theme for next year's forum, what would it be? I think one of the areas that I found got lost in the geopolitical discussions, the, the, the positivity around growth was climate. And climate took a backseat from what I saw this year. And I think if you look around the world, we are so for- focused on what the next six quarters. If we focus on the next you know, 30 years and what type of planet we're going to leave behind for the next generation, we have to deal with these issues. And we're putting them aside for short-term growth and trade. And therefore, I hope to revisit that macro theme around climate and carbon. That's an important message to uh, end on. Dave, thanks so much for uh, spending the time with us. Thank you. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Today's show was produced by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse from RBC. Thanks so much for listening.